Hey guys, this is Zemet. I'm here with John. Hey, what's up? And this is your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today we are doing a two-piece. We haven't done one for a while. We're excited to bring that episode type back into the fold. And we are trying to, with these two pieces, disambiguate, uh, as John said before we started recording, what we mean by elite. We've been throwing that word around a lot. Uh, you see it a lot everywhere, and I don't think we've really done any granular work on that idea and what that's going to mean. I think we got a little bit close with the Lash stuff, um, the series we did on his book, The Revolt of the Elites. If you're a new listener, you can go back. I think that's something like episodes five, six, eight, and nine, um, and listen to those. And uh, today we're going to try to make some distinctions and hopefully come to appreciate what different factions of the elite there are and how elite culture has changed over the past uh, several decades, maybe even century. So we're going to get into that. Um, The pieces that we're going to be dealing with, and you can find them in the show notes. The first one is... um, called American Gentry from Patrick Wyman's Substack. Uh, Shout out to Josh, friend of the show, soon to be guest of the show, um, that sent this my way. Uh, Really helpful and quite well-written piece, I have to say. I I very much admire this guy's prose. I think I've read a couple things from him before. And it's always like better than average Substack quality even compared to some of the big guys over there. And then the second one we're going to be dealing with comes from the spring 2021 issue of American Affairs. It is by Aaron M. Wren. It is called E. Digby Baltzell's Sociology of the Elites. This is the guy who comes up with the phrase WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and uh, how he tracked shifts in elite culture over the course of American history and why he's important to approach now. So... We'll start with the Wyman. And one of the things that he wants to talk about is the difference between like, maybe I would say he doesn't quite say this, but I would say that this is what I inferred is that there are at least three different types of elite. And the very top is going to be global elite. To me, this is going to be like um, a Jeff Bezos type, a Bill Gates type guys who have this globe trading quality, Jack Ma, um, in China, probably, is another great example. Sarkozy, maybe? You know, yeah, these just people? people with like international business. Yeah, the Davos crowd. The Davos crowd. Yeah, something like that, mm-hmm. which we're all pretty familiar with, I think. Yeah. At least as an idea. Yeah, I think that's that one's a little bit easier to, to grasp. And I think a lot of these people, you know, their stake is in financialization, you know, in basically international trade and they have interests in more than one tax zone. Yeah. (laughs) And likely they have Cayman accounts, right? Yeah. Like, I think that that's, that's going to be another feature of this crew. So that's what they're going to be interested in. They're going to be parts of NGOs and political institutions that are interested in that. And then we're going to have like what I would call like uh, national elites, And these are going to be people who are prominent in U.S. politics and 
the market who don't really extend their influence too far beyond the borders of the U.S. Now, I'm sure some of the decisions they make ripple out because the United States is indeed an empire. Yeah. But I think we can appreciate there's a distinction between like the Clintons um, and someone like, let's say, a lesser known uh, senator. Yeah. Right? From like Ohio or something like that. Certainly it's somewhat porous of a border depending mm-hmm. on your life path and so on. But yeah, there's maybe it could even be something of a spectrum, but certainly. And then I guess the main focus of his article is the third class, right? Mm-hmm. And that would be the gentry. Yeah. The local gentry, these are people who are tied to the land. They own all the car dealerships in your area probably a famous Hollywood version of this is like Mark Wahlberg, right? Like he's basically now like a, a local gentry guy in Massachusetts. Like he owns the Wahlberger chain of burgers. Like he has all the car dealerships that he has, you know, there's something like charming about the fact that he's like a gentry guy in Massachusetts, despite being this Hollywood dude. Um, I think it's a very surprising like middle-class upper middle class like ideology he has operating within him that feels totally. a little bit different than uh, some of the other stuff. That's the, and I think so one interesting thing, like you said, they're usually, they own small businesses, but maybe a lot of them, or maybe they own like a particularly successful, just one business or something. Yeah. Like the major agriculture firms in your area or whatever. Big you know. construction. Yeah. Firms. Um, things. These like are the that. chamber of commerce guys. Yeah. I definitely, growing up where I did, I grew up around these people. Like I didn't really know who they were, but I would later come to find that they were like different parts of this group constellation. And it, I was thinking of it before the show, but like the soundtrack of the local gentry it was Montgomery Gentry, I think, the mm-hmm. country duo. Like yeah, it's yeah, yeah. not, it's a completely different world. He says they're the millionaires, maybe not the billionaires. Mm-hmm. And you'll find them at like a local Mexican restaurant drinking margaritas on Friday night, wearing like a fishing shirt, you know? And yeah, like, totally. Totally. It's they're They're local. They're, they're in your town and they're kind of, they don't, there's no like cosmopolitan set of mores or culture or anything mm-hmm. to it. They're very much like people like you, but they kind of made it, which is interesting. Um, because they're the vision of middle-class success that I was raised with, which other people uh, had a different vision. And I've only just thought about it because I read this article, but like, so the people who seem kind of successful in the orbit of my world were people who started their own business. Usually like most people in my extended family were doing like construction or something. Mm -hmm. So like if you started your own construction business or plumbing business, you could eventually make enough money to have like one or two houses down at the coast, a boat and like several trucks. And like, that was it. Like you had made it at that point. Yes. Yeah. You have, you know, you've got some millions of dollars. You may have investments or whatever. And you have like a small, like regional empire, maybe of some kind of thing. And if you are not going to go to college, that's still ostensibly possible for you. Mm I would say, especially where I'm from, if you're white, it just so happens to be the case. Yeah. Um, but 
overall, like I didn't really come into contact with another idea of what it meant to make it until later, which is you go to college, you become a professor or a computer programmer or a doctor, or you obtain some kind of profession and you own like one house, but it's a nice house and you trade on these skills for a certain level of like cultural prestige, which kind of interestingly exceeds that of these people in a lot of ways. Like maybe that guy owns a helicopter, but like he'll never really be looked upon in the same light as like a New England doctor, you know, who may even have Right. I mean, I think that's sort of the other fourth category maybe we've left out or that has like a term that's in vogue and that it needs its own teasing out or whatever. I don't think we're going to do that here, but that's just what's called the professional managerial class, I believe. Yeah. And like how that formation works, if it's a distinct formulation is its whole debate that I, I'm going to bracket for here, but it is important to point out that like the gentry are local. I mean, I'm just going to read from Wyman's thing, which I think puts a, a nice point on what John has brought up here. Which he says, the gentry are generally distinct from the highest levels of regime's political and economic elite. They're usually not resident in the political center. They don't hold major positions in the central administration of the state. He's talking here like a a federal type of thing um, at the federal level, whatever that might consist of, and are not counted among the wealthiest people in their polity. New national or imperial elites might emerge over time from a gentry class, even rulers. The boundaries between these groups can be more or less porous, but that's usually not the case. Gentry are, by definition, local elites. The extent to which they wield power in their localities and how they do so is dependent on the structure of their regime. Yeah, this is like True Detective season two. <laughs> right, or when I was when I was bouncing at, um, so I worked at a Gold's Gym in Tallahassee. And it was owned by, it was co-owned, the franchise there was co-owned by a few gentry elites. One guy grew up in a trailer park. The other was old Florida money. They were the majority owners in in the state. The brother of the trailer park guy, like operated the most successful MMA gym there, right? And so they put on all the shows. What was that place called? The Moon or something like that? Yeah, something like that. It was out by the Little Caesars, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> like on that side of town. <laughs> oh, I remember that. And that Ross by the the downtown Golds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's where they would do fight night and stuff like that, where local politicians and like dudes who were the heads of fraternities were there and stuff like that because FSU was there, state school, lots of local gentry dudes in the uh, fraternity culture there the greek culture and eventually i got offered a job by somebody to work uh security at a couple of clubs um down the like in downtown tallahassee one of which was like kitty corner to the law offices of i think the bush campaign during the oh yeah, yeah yeah right yeah and um it was there where I was rubbing elbows with dudes who were again, these like fraternity guys or whatever, or who co-owned the bar. One of their dads was like an important state Senator and stuff like that. And I remember slowly because I was reliable, a good worker, like, you know, all of these things, it became clear to me that if I hung out there long enough, I would get opportunities 
because people would be like, hey, if you ever want to work security at one of our private flat, frat parties, man, like, you know, because you didn't punch that dude in the face and you like de-escalated that, I would like, you're reliable. If you need extra work, just let me know. That was you sick know, professionalism, bro. Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just like, thank you for not just like, you could have like totally been within <laughs> your rights to fuck up that frat brother of mine. And you didn't do that. Like, do you want some extra work? Yeah. Right. Because if you bounced at one of these clubs, like provided you didn't really hurt one of these gentry class people, there was, there were cop cars parked down the street. If you like beat the shit out of some guy and threw him out, the cops would just come and pick him up. They wouldn't ask you any fucking questions. Like the only rule there, which was told to me almost explicitly was not don't hit anyone. It was don't let anyone see you hit anyone, <laughs> but please fuck up whoever you want, <laughs> you know? And so like, that was a window. That was my first time really appreciating. Naturally it happened in the South, this sort of oh. like local gentry culture and how these people determine the shape of the world around you. Now it was also with the state capital. And so it had all of these other politics attached to it as well. But Wyman's whole piece is how we sort of underappreciate the power of those gentry elites now. And it's not and that they like proportion. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's sort of like a, if we're to criticize Lash's revolt of the elites, it's, I think that something he doesn't fully appreciate is the distinction between gentry and national Mm, what he seems to think over the course of that book is that the gentry class has basically converted to a national and largely international elite Mm. and that that's part of the problem not necessarily that there has been as we'll see with um about baltzell's ideas um about this a sort of like waning of elite cultural ethics and um, a shift in demographics and also just fundamental changes in the character of the American nation state that have really done this, you know? So these gentry people are still there. They're still tied to the land. If you live in a, you know, second or third city, they run your whole fucking life, whether you know it or not. Yeah. I think what Alash was appreciating was the fact that the people who were local but extremely wealthy of the mm-hmm. like 19th century times mm-hmm. eventually kind of rise to become first a national and then an international elite. And I think we kind of only look at them and lash and we look at them and we look at like bracketed PMC yeah. as rootless cosmopolitans Um you need not be trusted essentially you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> and yeah. which is fine but it's worth bearing in mind that the people who were like running montgomery alabama probably still are or like any other town you want to pick you know what yeah. i like the totally. same family oh, yeah. same group like and that for what it's worth is like worth our consideration as well yeah and just to give a, a, a nice little point on like how this has changed over time is um, through some friends of my wife, we got invited to this party where these architecture students were staying. And it was at the Gamble House in like Pasadena, which was owned by one of the family. It was one of the family, either Proctor or Gamble. I can't remember if it's the Proctor or Gamble (laughs) House, but one of those families who rose to prominence and had this very interesting, like half arts and crafts, half faux, like Japanese architecture house, built um 
out here in the West during the civil war, because they got wealthy off of the contracts they cut with the union army. Right. And so they went from being sort of like a local gentry thing to now a national gentry thing off of the industrialization process that took place during the civil war, which did really change America as a nation state, not just because the civil war is always going to do that, but because it also involved modernizing industrial processes that did that. And to give you an idea of how like foundational they saw their investments and their work into how they did what they were doing, you know, basically soap and sanitary contracts for them is that all of the tiles and all of the like handles and things like that are the handles are all copper and the tire tiles are all the antiseptic tiles that got put into the early subway stations. Right. Because that like they helped work on those projects too. That was part of their like health and human services work or whatever. And Mm. so they integrated it into their own home. Right. And I think we can see that as a demonstration of kind of the closeness, both with the gentry and the national to sort of the project of what's happening, but also within it, we can see how that's changing over time in some ways that I think Lash tracks correctly, even if he undersells the existence and as Wyman points out, prominence of the gentry elite in our lives. Yeah. I think if you need an illustrative example and you didn't happen to have our life experience, think about gangster movies. Mm Mm-hmm you have the like local boss or whatever talking with the like police chief of the area who's you know totally on the take yeah and he's like oh yeah like we got the chamber of commerce guys breathe you're like that whole kind of thing like, i mean that's like, what that's- the whole sin city series is about it's yeah. about the intrigues of these like state level local gentry elite psychos yeah and like the those- havoc they wreak in their own city those stories almost can't take place on any level higher than that because it requires a certain level of like neglect, which yeah, is only yeah. possible at the local. <laughs> right, exactly. And a certain boundedness and power that's only believable at the local level too. Right, right. Right. And it's, so it's like a part of our cultural consciousness, whether or not we really conceive of it that much analytically these days. But, you know, it was... It was an interesting piece, you know. I don't have a lot that I specifically can say about it. Like, what's the word? No, I think it's 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 synthetically right, right now. Right. But I think it's something that's probably going to come up a lot in the future now that we're thinking about it. Yeah, totally. And I think it's also a transition to this other American affairs piece that we want right. to talk about because. You know, I think uh, Wyman is right to, as John did, emphasize the porous borders between some of those these types of elite. You know, um, also important to realize that they don't necessarily have like the same interests, you know, right. or whatever. Like, and they, that can be culturally and materially. You know, like I don't think the Obama Obama administration was particularly bad to those local Florida gentry elites but they sure as fuck didn't like him. Part of that was probably because he was black, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, some of it was just that like, they didn't culturally identify with some of the, like as Sarah Palin said, hopey changey shit. Yeah. That wasn't what they were interested in. That wasn't their values in other words, and they didn't see themselves in it. So Digby Baltzell 
comes up with the idea of the wasp. Now he's sort of like a Tocquevillian uh, Thorsten Veblen guy. He comes up in an elite family that sort of falls from grace. And so he ends up going to Penn instead of one of the Ivies. And over the course of his life, he basically becomes a sociology of the elite. He thinks that uh, sociology in America, at the time he's coming up is dominated by like um, semi-Marxist guys or pseudo-Marxist guys like um, uh, C. Wright Mills, who were great in their own right or whatever. I'm not shit talking their work, but just saying that their bent was more probably towards indicting the elite than like fully trying to work out a systemic understanding of what they were as a cultural entity in America. Right. And that's basically what Baltzell tried to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. It covers three major works, which address three major problems of mm-hmm. trying to look at what a wasp is in America. And he, lays out as well that wasp did not actually mean white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Probably most white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were not wasps. Um, yeah, it was an yeah. extremely specific national cultural group that shared through, I guess you would say at first private boarding schools or just private schools and then attending the same elite universities and then working at the same firms Um they developed a common culture that ended up becoming somewhat national, although obviously they're all concentrated really in one part of the country. Um, New England. Yeah. They have country clubs, which are another, like, I think I would say that's probably after you're like a fully formed adult. That's the main arena within which this is kept alive and re inculcated Mm -hmm. into new people. Um, So it's not, Wasp is these specific group of people who end up in politics, end up in business and both back and forth. And yeah, the interesting, so he points out that they had a, their common culture was like an elite culture. And I think he's rather fond of it. And maybe we all could be a little bit, mm-hmm. even if it um, it's, it's, I mean, it is the, like, it's the Anglo American elite culture. It's absolutely I would say absolutely British in origin because it's so familiar to you. If you have read any novels or whatever set in like 19th century England, like this is British aristocratic culture kind of filtering into the American elite where the focus is kind of, you know, fair play is a word that comes up a lot. Sporting. It needs to, things should be fair. You should be sporting. Yeah. You know, (laughs) you have a certain, you interact with people in a certain way that's defined by manners and like kind of dignity and things. And so you, there are things that are done and there are just things that are not done. You know, like if somebody steps out of line and is a bit gauche, like that's a problem at this yeah. time. Yeah. Like you just, it's dishonorable. I mean, this so, was, this was the type of ethics that I, I grew up with in the Midwest even. Mm. That was very favored by my mother. Like she was insistent on fair play. And I mean, I guess these almost archaic, my mom was like very insistent on like ideas of honor. Mm. Like that there were things that you would do, you could do that were dishonorable and were like against some sort of abstract code that would strip you of your dignity and sully others by behaving in that way. 
it's very maybe we can come back to it later but it's highly reminiscent of like i don't know other forms of ritualized or semi-ritualized life in which there are certain rules and codes that you have to play within um what's coming to mind like really easily for me is like if you look at any arthurian stuff like yeah you as a knight you, you absolutely cannot attack somebody who is like unable to fight back because there is a rule of reciprocity that like you are just forever tainted if you do that. Mm-hmm. Likewise, it's pretty bad if you attack them with a spear, if they only have a sword, like you're taking advantage and that is fair play. So I feel like fair play and this kind of like aristocratic idea has probably a pretty long lineage. You could probably find examples of it in archaic Greece um, with the ways in which religion completely regulated warfare in some aspects um, yeah. I mean, also in the ways in which, um, you know, the Western way of war, where we have been sort of the 19th century and before inheritance of ideas of war have been unable to like fully appreciate or assimilate what guerrilla war is all about up until recently. Mm. There was a whole code of ethics for that. I mean, especially after the Napoleonic code and things like that, where this was a whole way in which society was like modernized and things like that. And elite statuses were formulated, you know. Right. So not to get too far afield, but just to lay the groundwork. But this is if anyone's read The Good Soldier, that for me is like this world, like par excellence. Mm. It's a Ford Maddox Ford novel, but it's ostensibly about like a bunch of infidelity. But really what's going on is like the aristocratic ethic of England is like dying because it's being crushed by capital. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like the swan song of this flawed, but like beautiful. I mean, it's, it's so 19th century, you know, you yeah. also think of like um, the mad Duke of Bavaria or something. I can't remember his name, but the guy yeah. who was like obsessed with Wagner and yeah. had like rooms in his castle painted with scenes from Parsifal. And when he, he was killed under very strange circumstances by gunshot wound. Mm. And Wagner said of him that he was like an angel that was too pure for this world or something. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) You get these interesting sort of like appraisals of aristocracy right at the time when it's dying a pretty Mm -hmm. ignoble death um, because the business powers and concerns are becoming far more compelling, I would say. And they're like the material basis or whatever for the power of the old elite is just like withering faster than they can comprehend. Um, so you end up with these like impoverished barons who can no longer support their estates mm-hmm. and things like that coming about. So I think we're witnessing maybe as a later and similar development to the indigenous national elite, which we developed and then lost quite quickly. Um, yeah. It all happened. So he's, he gives it like a 40 year period from like 1880 to 1890 to about 1940-ish, mm-hmm. where we have uh, a national elite with a common ethic, which, and he, he thought the most important thing about them, I think, for democracy was he conceded that even by this point, like the population is atomized. And mm-hmm. it seems like that's conceded without any more thought. It's just yeah. sort of like the population is atomized. They can never form a democratic basis on their own mm-hmm. because they are... You know, like they're subject to the worst fears of the excesses of democracy, uh, Caesarism. So yeah. there's no real possibility for them alone to carry what's needed. But what we have is this bulwark 
mm-hmm. of an American elite who, because they have, they have a strong ethic and a shared culture and they enforce it mutually upon themselves. They're able to set the tone. They're able, like you won't have Caesar figures if these people are in power because they control the political arena. They present, and I mean, I feel like he was so Lippmann-esque in his thinking because he's like, they present the alternatives for the Mm -hmm. atomized masses to choose. Like you have to draw politicians from this class because then they're regulated politicians. If you have people coming from anything, then who knows what they're capable of. Mm -hmm. And it's, I thought it was very Lippmann-esque in that you have to have political people who have the political techne who have mastered that, who have developed (laughs) the culture of politics and being a noble and only they can rule. And I'm saying all this kind of sarcastically, but I don't feel that way about it necessarily entirely. There's not nothing to it. Right. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, the essayist Ren brings up, which I, (laughs) I didn't know. And I thought was amazing. This is sort of the last prominent person in the Adams lineage was like on the board of Raytheon and died in 1999. I mean, this goes from like one of the founding fathers, first presidents, like people who were huge in, you know, and then John Quincy Adams and then the Adamses who were prominent during the civil war. Right. You know, um, and stuff like that. Like these long lineages we really just don't hear about in the same way. It, yeah. And it makes me, well, okay, we'll back up a little bit. So we talked a lot about democratic subjectivity on the show. We talked about Lash and how mm-hmm. we're now deeming it like essential if you want to talk about having a democracy. And I mean, it's something like if you look at, I think what Foucault would talk about when he would talk about Athens is like Athens sort of pioneered a method of creating a subjectivity mm-hmm. of a free person and figuring out how free people could rule other free people and things like, so and I'm not even, it's not just to say that like, this seems important, like to think about that aspect of it. And I think mm-hmm. what he's realizing here is that like in the absence of any possible democratic subjectivity for the quote unquote mass, there was at least the possibility for a political subjectivity, a certain kind of political subjectivity to exist among an elite And they could have it by virtue of the fact that they had enough leisure and they were leading liberal lives free of labor. And a certain type of patterned subjectivity that came out of the cultural formations and institutions like country clubs, boarding schools, things like this. And because they were rooted in either local or national culture. Right. That would give them the ability to govern successfully. And what he thought was so important about what this class could provide, and it really had to do two things on top of that. And one thing that it had to do is it had to have some sense of responsibility and take up positions of civic leadership. Mm-hmm. Like they had to be political leaders and in the sense that it should be like their culture should produce people who willingly take that burden upon themselves mm-hmm. and then go and fulfill it. Yeah, the second thing they should do, yes. And the second thing is they need to be open and willing to including whatever new rising demographics or capable men appear into their ranks. 
they have to have some system by which they renew themselves by including these new people because otherwise they will degenerate into what he calls a cast, which is mm-hmm. where he sees them ending up by the time he's doing this work. Yes. And he's particularly frustrated with their uh, anti-Catholic and anti-Protestant ideas. Um, because at this point, the demographics in America has shifted, right? America has taken on a bunch of immigrants from Europe. Most of them not of Protestant extract. Yeah. Right. Many and Jewish people, many Catholics. Right. And it didn't used to be that the American elites were anti-Semitic. Right. Um, in fact, he points out uh, that there were plenty of them in Philadelphia's elite structures in the mm-hmm. 18th and 19th century. It's not until this influx of immigrants happens, who all, of course, are proletarianized. Very few become bourgeois. And of course, once you become bourgeois, you have access to all sorts of other things and other types of power. But just a, a nice little footnote in the article is uh, JP Morgan once said, you can do business with anyone, but you can only sail with a gentleman. Mm. which I think perfectly captures like the type of thing that Baltzell was critiquing, you know, that you could have like Jewish business partners. You could have them over in your home for dinner. You could do whatever, but they couldn't join your country club. Right. And then of course we get extend this to Like if you were black fucking forget about it, (laughs) like that (laughs) shit was not happening. You know what I mean? Like, and so I think that what we see in Baltzell is like a, somebody who's really internalized Tocqueville's concerns about American democracy and its potential pitfalls and who at the same time very much sees himself as an American and adheres to American commitments of meritocracy, which was part of how America negotiated a relationship between having Republican democracy that was Mm. in this aristocratic British mold that had ethics of fair play. So that's sort of like the origins or the seed out of which the meritocratic concern in America blossoms. There's not nothing to that. If you want to like, there's plenty of that in the writings of the founding fathers. Like that was definitely something that they would agree with. Like you kind of need a hierarchical level of people. That's the electoral college is like, Mm -hmm. you take the most trusted guy in your township and send him off to go vote for you. You know, like, and also these guys were like uh, people who, had to like fuck off from England because there's no more inheritance for them or whatever. Right. And they had also seen like how stupid and shitty blood aristocracy was. Right. And resented it. Like they wanted men of quality. Yeah. And there's, there's still an idea of a hierarchy, but it's at least attempted to be formed on a different basis. Even if that ultimately fails, mm-hmm. there is at least this idea that like, you know, the capable man by his own qualities will rise and I mean, that's like, that's the biography of Benjamin Franklin, to be yeah, honest. Like, that's absolutely. the story he's telling about himself. Yeah. Is that he was just some random plucky guy who was like opening printing presses. And there he is, you know, in France. And Right. And there was sort stuff. of this respect for and fear of ambition. Right. Because ambition was necessary for meritocracy to function. But all these guys were paranoid that some sort of aristocracy was going to recongeal, particularly maybe around some sort of like dark world Washington figure mm-hmm. who wouldn't disband the military and would actually just consolidate that power and turn it into some sort of dictatorship or something yeah. like that. Um, which is why Washington had to be very careful with how he was going to show up 
in the revolutionary moment and how he presented himself and why he would like leave the room when they were deciding on who would lead certain things so that he did not appear, even though he was ambitious, as somebody who was over eager to take the reins of power. These were the things that had to be negotiated by these guys right? Know, when they thought about it. And these were things that were then sort of like handed down and became part of this WASP culture that, okay, so we have these shifts in the state. We talked about the Civil War. Of course, we also have the crisis of the 30s. And then we have post-World War II America. When America becomes an empire, when frankly, it is not prepared to do that. It doesn't have like an organized civil service. It doesn't have all of these things. It has onboarded all of these GIs who come from all different cultural backgrounds, though still majority European, um, who then can now rise through the ranks. Like up until like the mid 70s, something like 60% to three quarters of like Congress and the House were all World War II vets. You know what I mean? Like, all think about all of the like engineering discipline and expertise that comes out of the companies that were adjacent to the gear up for World War II and the hand that they start playing in the build out of America and the right. way in which America becomes a very middle class society. And it's especially when we get into the conflicts of the 50s and 60s, we really see, and this is what, what um, Baltzell notices, uh, the elites just sort of, these WASP elites just basically step out of view. Because they can't, whether they could at all, like whether he, they could have taken his critiques at all yeah. or whether they were fated to this, they did not develop um, an internal meritocracy that will allow them to onboard other people. And eventually they were overtaken by structural efforts. But with that went this sort of fair play culture and other things. And while that had its own vices, Baltzell and Wren, the author of this piece, I it's hard for me to argue against this, basically argue that the elites that rise out of this at the national and international level, if they don't have uh, any, uh, they basically have none of the virtues while having many of the vices <laughs> of these guys is what he's arguing. Yeah, I'm not unsympathetic to that. <laughs> right, okay, it's... yeah. So if we talk about the oligarchy of sob stories thing, like that is like the most anti-fair play ideology that you can have. Mm -hmm. right like that if we're sympathetic to that it's because we've made analyses like that before on the show now it's kind of the opposite of like you you're in charge because you were willing to like take upon yourself burdens of responsibility mm -hmm. that others aren't and that's why i like pay you rent or whatever as your tenant farmer and you're my lord you know what I like? There's something right. to the fact of like, when times are hard, like you're taking care of me and I can't do much for you. And when times are good, like, you know what? There's some well, kind of yeah, reciprocity, yeah. responsibility, we duty, and like a personal relationship. That yes. Even though it's hierarchical, you're like actually connected to other human beings that you feel some kind of like genuine human feeling toward. And so when you're imagining the old world that we're like all crying about what I just mentioned, like the nostalgia for the death of the aristocracy, mm -hmm. I think it's kind of a similar formulation when you think about the death of the like, you know, the Harvard boy or whatever, like the people. Yeah. And however much that, you know, like we can talk about this abstractly. I probably would have found them all highly distasteful if I had ever met any of them. Oh, 100%. How, how also, true I grew up Irish Catholic. I wouldn't have yeah. been allowed in the fucking room, you know? Yeah, like, and 
it's interesting that you, so we were talking about integration or onboarding, that kind of thing. Gosh. And like the part of me that has an artistic sensibility when I was reading, when he talked about like, you know, cause you mentioned that there are Jewish people who are already members or they open country clubs, but they then could not admit their own sons into the club. That was heartbreaking, dude. I, I was or just all like, the people who he was like, they all had tons of Jewish friends and they had to just stand by silently and watch them, you know, just be completely pushed out of any meaningful circle. And like the fact that just the, it was too, it was a lot. Cause like, that's supposed to be your like friend. You know what I mean? And not only that, like what a viol- what a contradiction and violation of fair play itself. Yeah. Which I think is what Baltzell was really, really sensitive to and why he was so disgusted with these, ty- this type of chauvinism, you know, and it it's clearly part of what I is, you know, I shit on meritocracy all the time because what a lie it's become in this country. But like, I am a fair play, lowercase r, lowercase d, Republican Democrat. You know, I really fucking believe in that. And the the chauvinisms that keep people out of participating in society where they could win civic virtue for the greater good of the whole, I find unconscionable. I really do. Like, I'm getting worked up now and like misty-eyed because it really does... If, we, if we're convinced, you and I, of McIntyre's layout of some of these ideas of telos and human excellence, the political is going to be an important part of that. And having a just society where people can arrive and responsibly govern the state and responsibly follow the governance of the state and exchange those roles, you can't violate fair play like that. It's kind of the, you know, when looking at something like Libby, for instance, you see that I feel like Livy's showing us in a lot of the early books that the most dynamic and like best times for Rome were the periods in which this was all really, it was in a primal state, so to speak. Like you have a really small initial settlement that slowly builds itself up. And in a lot of ways it does so because it can integrate people. Mm -hmm. It can take people Mm -hmm. and make them a part of the city And in so doing, the process by which that happens is you become Roman, you need a sponsor, that sponsor immediately becomes your patron, you now owe them a debt you can never repay because they made you Roman and you can never give that back to them. And Mm -hmm. they in turn are guaranteeing that you will be a proper Roman, you'll follow the law and you won't shame them because they're on the hook for anything that you do. So this is an immediate, like you have a stake, they have, everybody has some kind of stake and we're right. all kind People, of incentivized to, to like actually make some contribution in yeah. somehow. And they were a highly urban and civic society anyways, where that was already like built into being in the mm-hmm. league like, till the end of the empire, mm-hmm. like cities were constituting themselves on the fact that like the elite actually had a lot of public duties and they just performed them because it was completely unthinkable that you wouldn't like the world was over if you didn't do that. And so like, it's maybe a different society in a lot of ways, but it bring, and as Americans, we're kind of uniquely obsessed with Rome in a lot of ways. So it felt kind of meaningful to bring up that, like, I'm mm-hmm. sure every single person who was thinking about this in the 18th century 
had some Livy in mind or some other authors and some Plutarch, you know, and some right. Gibbons. They were they were really, you know, and some Montesquieu, right? Right. Whose book on the decline of Rome is brief and delightful. Highly mm. recommend it. I mean, one of my favorites. I should reread it. Um, but uh, you know, one of the things that came up while I was looking at this. Okay, so I'll say this first. One of the things that I used to surprise me is like um because i was sort of like an unthinking like progressive lefty is i was just like wow how come all of these like immigrants from like south america or whatever a lot of them don't have their like a chip on their shoulder about like america in some way and are like patriotic and the thing you just described about like you know you you're roman now and you can never Mm -hmm. get that but you know like you want to be like law-abiding and all of these things like i'm like yeah i get that now like i get after you know, living through this pandemic for a year, having the changes of mind and heart that I've had and detailed over the course of this podcast, frankly, and and before that, like, I want to be an American. I want America to succeed. There are a lot of things that I think are wrong with it, but I feel some sort of duty to this country that's given me everything, whether I wanted it or not and that my life is bound up in, and that plenty of people who come here feel that way too. You know, and there are plenty of people who've been excluded from things over the course of this country's history as well. And that's something to reckon with, you know? And so I just, I just wanted to point that out, right? That like, that's, that seems to have been an abiding concern and an abiding value um, from Rome to another empire america Mm -hmm. um the other thing that i wanted to bring up was in reading this i realized um because baltzell is very interested in the difference between philadelphia and boston right like that's for him like what athens and jerusalem are to strauss like philadelphia and boston are to baltzell you know hilarious (laughs) (laughs) Because he's constantly trying to figure out how Massachusetts really overtook Pennsylvania, right? And I didn't—I never really thought about that in some way. I was just like, "Oh yeah, shit!" Like Harvard is there, like duh, but also MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, right? Um, I tend to think of those as part of a larger national or even region regional power, not so much a state one when I compare it to something like. Pennsylvania. And he has interesting ideas where he wants to take a look at the anti-intellectual, radically democratic culture of the Quakers and the more elitist intellectual uh, bent of the Calvinists in Massachusetts and how these things play out over time. Now, I don't have as strictly a cultural sociological explanation of these things, but state culture is something that we almost never talk about anymore. You know, but I I would almost like to... um, return with a V to like state, state culture. Like I think about uh, going to Thomas Alva Edison elementary school across the baseball diamond from Carl Sandburg junior high, right. As a kid, the fact that Carl Sandburg wrote like a very lovely, I've only read parts of it, like three volume history of Abraham Lincoln, the like, even though he's from Kentucky, like Illinois boy, you know, mm-hmm. and how much of that feels like it's lost, but it, it, it helps explain 
so much of America, if you can remember these state entities as entities unto themselves. Yeah, that was one of the most kind of interesting, not one of the most, it was a very interesting part of reading Washington Irving because he gets into like the Dutch part of New England Mm -hmm. um, and everyone, you know, the Van Tassels and all that kind of thing. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And now there's this little farming societies are constituted and things. And you get to the point where you're like, yeah, there's a point at which America is made up of only distinct segments of European immigrants in terms of like the white immigrant population yeah, and culturally how like, you know, the history of New York before when it was a Dutch and like all this sort of stuff. Um, and the next wave and then the Appalachian immigrations and you have the, like um what are what are all the scottish people that aren't catholic they're like uh the scotch irish presbyterian oh yeah 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 Yeah, like the presbyterians i don't know that yeah so religious denominations are so well they used to play such a role (laughs) they used to play yeah like the the early colonization period to like crazy conflicts happening between like protestant denominations that i find to be like both inscrutable and like only slightly different from each other are being played out like so you know like people are dying over it and it's making up the makeup of these states and eventually the states become a little bit more homogenous they stop being little communities and they start having an overall like state culture like you're pointing to i think Mm -hmm. that's how you get people who are like you know Robert E. Lee, like I will fight for Virginia or something. You know what I mean? Like there's a kind of like, I'm a Virginian first and I'm an American maybe. (laughs) Right. Right. And I think that after, after the, uh, frankly, the industrial development after the civil war and then over the course of the two world wars and the recovery from the crash or what really start to change that. And we get, I mean, I think we can understand the mid 20th century fear of mass culture. Yeah if we understand that what was sort of the predecessor culture to that. Yes. You know, and that's something that I started to think. So I, well, I think, you know, I read a little bit from Wyman. I'd like to read this thing that sort of touches on fair play here. Um, just, just briefly as part of it. Cause I think it's, I think to do this guy is good, good faith. And then John, maybe we can sort of talk about like how we feel about this focus on strictly the elites because I think that there yes. might be some, uh, some, some problems there, you right. know, um, <laughs> that we should definitely talk about, you know, because mm-hmm. I think we've done a good job of being like um, trying to give them their due, right. Sort of taking an oppositional stance to some of the things that you and I have talked about before. And I think now we should bring back our, our critique, but I think we'll do one last point here to Ren and Baltzell's favor. While America was perhaps more freewheeling than England, the same codes once applied here as well. But that is less true, or perhaps not at all the case today. The erosion of political norms is but one example of the decline of fair play, as people seek personal or partisan advantage wherever they can find it. America's tradition of free speech, of letting everyone have his say in an open debate was also in a sense a manifestation of that same value and again is increasingly rejected. Cheating and gaming the system have always been present in America, but today they are practically an accepted way of life, even at higher levels of society. For example, 
Not only did 73 West Point students recently get caught cheating on exams, but they are largely being forgiven for doing so rather than expelled for violating the school's honor code. You might say, like, who gives a shit about West Point and, like, these nabby-pamby elites who are all hypocrites anyway? I read that and was very concerned. I was like, this is the officer corps of an empire, and they're just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, I'm like, that's not good. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, and it's, you can look at it in a handful of ways, and one might be, why did that many students all feel the need to cheat together? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, still not good. And and one of the things that happened, I'll just read this. This happens on the next team because I think this is the same thing. There's like elites don't even believe in their own institutions anymore. Right. Right. Which I think is like one of the implicit things that's happening both in this piece. And I wish that more time had been spent on it. But I think right. that would have required a, a critique of the elites that if you really subscribe to this is hard to make. In other words, it becomes a blind spot. Uh, and so I thought this was great. Baltzell wrote, that after the Protestant establishment was published, conspiracy theories of history have steadily risen among Americans, probably more among the educated classes than among the hard hats. Kennedy assassination conspiracies are an early example. A more contemporary one is the belief that Donald Trump colluded with Vladimir Putin to steal the 2016 presidential election. Yeah. Maybe this is what breakdown kind of looks like on a cultural mm -hmm. like narrative manifesting and like transmitting level because when i think about this a lot and like you were saying like may, there were, things used to be a bit more centralized i would argue like yeah we had several major news organizations that most people were fed and they all kind of coalesced around a sort of elite consensus. You could argue there is as much as there was supposedly fighting, there is an elite consensus about what was not to be fought about. <laughs> and yeah. I think that, <laughs> that in some meaningful way, like tied us together as, as you know, American subjects. And we, we had our differences within a scope that was sort of allowable. And while that was going on, much, much criticism was made of it. And for good reason, However, we're now witnessing the breakdown of that structure and system. And I think it's in part, and it's an interesting point to make that part of it is the fact that the people who occupy the like elite sectors of society themselves no longer really have any kind of commitment to that system. Mm -hmm. And it's driven by technology. It's driven, you know, the medium is the message totally like the blogs, mm -hmm. the videos, the things like that's all changed things forever and it'll never yeah. be the, the same caffeine, again. The nicotine, the milligrams of tar, it's the habitat <laughs> yeah. it needs to be cleaned. It's my car. It's government. <laughs> it's the plight for power. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's the way and, you move with knowledge slow without control and subtle hints. Cause I have to say like I've experienced different people in my life who are all the baby boomer generation have gotten mm -hmm. plugged into different streams of like what we're going we're gonna to call conspiracy theory. Like, yes. and I'm the person who feels like I'm able to remain somewhat aloof from it all enough to sort of not feel like I'm plugged into it and like entering a feedback loop of just like swallowing it, spewing it and like and that whole thing. And I, you know, and I'm sure you have similar experiences, but I can remember like, you know, back when these people just watched 
like the news of yesterday, it felt like there was, I don't know, is it like they invest, there was like less of a crazy like libido investment thing going yeah, on yeah, in yeah. It or something. Well, psychopolitics hadn't become the dominant mode of right. engagement. Even if we were sort of on rails to get there, as I think, um, I mean, it was happening before this, but whatever, but I think probably. I'll endlessly talk about how great this essay is insider baseball by Joan Didion in 1988 really captured like how we were headed towards where we were going. Maybe um, Hunter Thompson's book on Nixon mm. campaign probably also has a little bit of that going on, mm-hmm. but that level, as you're saying of libidinal investment wasn't as dominant. Yeah. Like, I remember you were talking recently, like, was it the only time anyone talked about politics at your university was when Obama won? Yeah. Like you would sort of like vaguely talk about like international things, kind of, you know, stuff that just the NGO complex would shut out, shit out every now and again. But like, I didn't, there were like two kids who read the news and they were fucking lame. Yeah, like the news junkies where you're <laughs> yeah, like, you know, I don't even talk to those lame. weirdos. They lived in the quiet houses and <laughs> importantly, they didn't make art. They were like STEM students or something <laughs> who had like, you know, wanted to put like solar panels in Dubai or something like that, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think so, like in some ways the operation of this informational like output is new. Like it's coming to us in a different way that just allows for less centralization. So you can get like a million different conspiracy narratives or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even, it's not that useful of a term maybe anymore. Like what isn't a conspiracy narrative or what's literally what's not a conspiracy narrative. I don't know because like we're all being, you know what I mean? So I think what part of the breakdown, yeah, um, it mirrors, I think, as he would say, like, well, the elites formed a bulwark against the atomization that we were all experiencing that weren't in that class. Mm -hmm. And I think to some extent, the forces which actuated our atomization just took a little bit longer to hit them. Mm -hmm. And I think in much the same way, we're seeing that process continue that like, they're in no way not downstream from whatever's also happening elsewhere. And it may not affect them in the same way, but there's no such thing as a like completely like, you know, they're not in the Citadel just waiting out whatever's happening to us. It's also all happening to them. Yes. Yeah. That's something that I thought was worthy of talking about more when looking at that piece. Right. Exactly. And how it poses some major problems from a sort of elite centric idea of governance and what's happening here is it's no longer the case where they are less damaged maybe even if they ever were yeah i think we're saying alleging that they kind of were i think maybe we can like we're giving benefit of the doubt to have a conversation yeah yeah yeah, exactly yeah (laughs) um how refuge they were from that and i mean this is you know there's a long uh sort of trajectory here you just need to check out the reactions to fucking Barry Goldwater's run. And, yeah. You know, there's a lot of this stuff already <laughs> taking place, you know, as paranoid as the Goldwater people were like the people yeah. who were terrified of Goldwater were just as, if not more paranoid and obsessed. Um, but like, look, you know, Wesley Yang talks about this as successor ideology. 
which has certain anti-meritocratic ideas. Um, and I'm not going to say meritocracy is bad full stop. I think it's important to have like proving grounds for people and things like that. Not so that you can necessarily like, put them into tiered groups, but because excellence is important and things need to get done in society and figuring out who's going to be excellent at what is it's necessary, you know? Um, and uh, it also has like an essentializing like racialist thing. Yeah. Right. And this is where we can sort of see, and this is, I talked with Ashley Frawley about this sort of like, not just the death of the enlightenment subject, but the idea that it was all a hoax to begin with. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if like power is going to go away when we do that or that the elites are not going to be the elites is that they're going to have different and maybe older, more frankly, like decadent aristocratic ideas of how power should be distributed and things like that. Right. I mean, one of the things he brings up, which is I appreciate a lot is operating via authority versus operating Mm -hmm. via naked power or like there's a lot more options in that and it's kind of mixed but you know that one of the things i think to go back to livy that i remember seeing reading that was that you know roman life is so constituted on authority and it might seem like this is insanely like this is the closed society man this is like repressive or whatever fuck (laughs) but like I think given their condition and like world and context, that was probably far preferable to like a much greater amount of internal bloodshed to stake mm-hmm. out who rules. Like, you know, it's not perfect or even good in a lot of cases, but there are things about it that we can maybe appreciate. And I would say that we today kind of the way that we think about this stuff. We often think authority is repressive and a lack of it might be just good, like free freedom fills the vacuum or whatever, but it's not necessarily so like you're saying, like just because we don't obey because people have authority doesn't mean we will have freedom. It just means we might obey because people have coercive measures that are going to be applied far more directly to our lives and by people far less competent or inspiring, you know, which if you have yeah. to obey somebody, they could at least be a little charismatic and like have some sense of like duty towards you that you won't feel like you're throwing away your efforts for someone who doesn't even care. Like there are certain things about these older formulations that, well, I agree. It's unlikely that we can go back to any past configuration. Exactly. They're worth thinking about. And I mean, ultimately, you know, what I suspect, maybe my internal disposition is sort of the like when confronting this stuff, it does feel like what honestly can we do, but kind of wrestle with it and try to understand it and see what's going on. But like, it feels like an Ibn Khaldun like cycle, like Mm. maybe we have just exhausted what's possible for us as we were. And like either now we're dynamic enough to become something else or we're not. And like, we just undergo a more thorough disintegration before reforming into something like seemingly that is what happens to societies over history. And it's kind of, it just is what it is. And 
one hopes that we're not in the the worst part of any of that cycle you know one hopes for some amount of dynamism that can cope with change and reconstitute something that is self-preserving and like self-reproducing which is kind of what you want out of a society for it Mm -hmm. to last longer than your lifetime but you know it's as we continue to chronicle things that are already gone <laughs> on this yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> one, Ships that have already sailed. The yeah. story of exhaust. Yeah. We, we, I find myself wondering like in the time between episodes, like what is, what's hack? Cause Deleuze has an interesting idea that there's two and he kind of, he's playing with Foucault when he says this, um, there's like kind of two things that we can do to sort of define ourselves. Like we exist sort of as an other in between history and the current and the current for him is actually what we are becoming. So we're not actually really the current yet. And history is what we've already become and left behind. And they both exist in this way that provide definition for us as something sort of all, we're like an alterity to both of those states, but we're also in the process of it. And that's one way of looking at it, I guess. And so if that's true, like we've, you know, Foucault uses history in a lot of interesting ways. And I think that we too are like pretty interested in history as a discipline. It might be like our primary concern, I think, between the both mm-hmm. of us and the show. And I often wonder like, you know, what is our state in terms of like our current position in that yeah. Deleuzean way? And like, are we we were talking i think before we started recording um a lot of people when they want to say like well here's the possibilities for the future they kind of present you with things that while they might have like these are good things and these are bad things they're all like palatable to the person giving you even like they've picked the bad things that are palatable to them maybe because it's mm-hmm. just interesting enough to them <laughs> they're yeah. like even though this sucks it's kind of like stimulating so yeah. you know what most people don't seem to be able to give you is the like really mediocre continuation of the like hell of the same. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Like that's something that that you don't get much of, but like, are we hampering ourselves by not being open enough to that as a distinct possibility? Right. And I would ask, I guess maybe I'll end it with sort of this, this question. It's like America has been around for what, like 230 something years, something like that. Hmm. That's not a long time. No. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's not nothing, but it's not a long time. What What if? What if? The future, if you're American, this is for you. What if the future doesn't belong to us in the way that it used to? But our futures belong to America. What then? To me, that's the question to ask right now. What then? So we'll leave you there. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. What's I'm
Sun. <laughs>